Second Peter chapter 1, we have been working through this book, looking at persevering in hope. This is some of the last words that Peter wrote. He wrote very boldly, very clearly. He had some warnings. He had some encouragement. All these words are just uh, as needful for us today. First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 <clears throat> says, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. We've been looking through these virtues that are to be added diligently to our faith. The first four verses laid out what God has given each of us. He's given us salvation. He's given us multiplied grace and peace through the knowledge of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. He's given us his divine power. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. He's given us a new destiny. And he has given us the opportunity to participate, to be partakers in the divine nature, which helps us to overcome the corruption of the lust of this world. These first four verses are power-packed as to our positional truth, what we have in Christ as Christians. But then you have this, this turning toward some responsibility on our part to put some things into practice. And that's where he says, and beside this, giving all diligence add to your faith. It's great that you have obtained like precious faith. It's great that you're saved, but now you have got to put some feet here to add to your faith these various virtues. It is our responsibility as Christians to continue to engage in the sanctification process, to walk by faith. And you see these, these virtues uh, they are simultaneous yet kind of sequential as they build one upon the next. And one virtue becomes the foundation for the next virtue to grow up out of. After you have faith, saving faith, then there needs to be a deepening knowledge of Jesus Christ and so forth. In chapter 1, as I've mentioned before, this is all about experiencing Jesus. Chapter 2 will expose the counterfeits. Chapter 3 will deal with living in expectancy of his return. This review here, experiencing Jesus begins with a personal testimony of salvation, then it requires an ever-deepening walk with him, and then it demands an appropriation of his divine virtues, and that's where we come to today. Faith leading to virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Let's review real quickly this word virtue. What's that dealing with? Uh, that is dealing with the, uh, the, the excellence of the fulfillment of one's purpose. You're only as excellent as you are fulfilling the purpose God has given you. When you know your purpose, it changes everything. And when you live according to that purpose, then you have real fulfillment in life. After you know your purpose and you're living toward that purpose, there needs to be a deepening knowledge of Jesus Christ. Knowledge comes next. And what is this knowledge? It's informing the heart about Christ, knowing who he is and how he thinks, not just 
what would Jesus do, but who is Jesus? And letting his life be lived through us as we depend upon him. That, of course, leads us right into temperance. Because the more you know about Jesus Christ, the more we want to have self-control, yielding our life to his, yielding to the Holy Spirit, to be, uh, to be uh, exercising restraint, taking hold of or getting a grip of these selfish appetites and so forth of the flesh and submitting ourselves to another, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. So out of virtue comes knowledge, out of knowledge comes temperance, and out of temp temperance comes patience. And the key idea of patience is endurance, to bear up under, to remain under, to endure and continue. Where temperance would be uh, the ability to restrain those inward desires, Patience or endurance is that ability to endure with the desires or the conflicts coming from outside, bearing up in those external areas. Virtue, capturing the heart for Christ, leads naturally to knowledge or informing the heart about Christ. Temperance or training of the heart then leads into uh, patience or that which guards the heart. Not quitting, not wearing out, not throwing in the towel, but continuing to push forward for that prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that brings us to godliness. As Dr. Jim Berg says in his book, he says godliness is the culmination of these first four virtues. It's kind of like a train. If you picture a train, you've got uh, the, all of these virtues broken up into two sections. Godliness and good works, the virtues that are primarily uh, our relationship with God, and then those virtues that affect our relationship with others. And if you're wondering, how do you achieve godliness? Uh, well, you don't just focus on being godly. If you want to achieve godliness, you focus on nurturing the first four virtues we just talked about. Adding to your faith, what? First of all, that devotion to God uh, as the, the Greek word was arete, that uh, knowing his purpose, knowing what he's created you to be and submitting to that and living for that new purpose, deepening that knowledge of him. And then the discipline of one's life, body, soul, and spirit, self-control leading to endurance. So godliness would be the crown and summary of the first four virtues of virtue, knowledge, self-control, and endurance. Godliness would be contrasted with what? Well, usually we would contrast it with godlessness or worldliness. And you're one on one side or the other. There's not an in-between, folks. You're either pursuing godliness or you're pursuing godlessness or worldliness. When we look at this kind of a word, it can be a little bit intimidating. Godliness. What does it actually mean? Well, it's the idea of God and likeness. God-likeness. I'll tell you, this is a hard one to preach as a preacher because whenever you preach on something, you want to preach from some, some uh, success, experience, 
uh, you know, I've got this down, and now I'm going to tell you. By the way, most times when preachers preach, they don't have it down. Uh, we're working on getting it down, but we're sharing it with you as we are on the same pilgrimage, okay? Uh, this is not something I can say. I've mastered godliness in seven easy steps. My book will be published shortly, and you guys get the sneak preview, and I'll be signing sermons out in the back afterwards, you know? That's not how this works. No, I haven't perfected godliness, godlikeness, and so it is a little bit intimidating. But I want us to see it this way. When you think of godliness this morning, think of godliness as a pursuit more than a destination. Because you and I are going to be on this pursuit our entire lives. The destination will finally uh, we'll finally arrive there at that destination when we are uh, glorified, where we meet him face to face. So yes, it is a destination, but I don't know that that needs to be your main focal point in this life. Think of godliness as the pursuit of godliness and the pursuit of, of him, his life in me. That train, you know, we're going somewhere. Trains are headed to a destination, but the journey can be okay. The journey can be good, and we can enjoy that journey together. God has not called us to have a socially acceptable Christianity, a lukewarm Christianity, a Christianity that doesn't ruffle any feathers, doesn't make anybody uncomfortable, there's nothing awkward, just totally blends in. No, God has called Christians to godliness, which means you're going to stand out. There's going to be a difference. And God designed it that way. It's part of his plan. When we think of the priorities of our culture, what do they include? It's all about, life is all about recreation, fun, pleasure, None of these things are sinful. None of, the, none of these things are wrong. I like recreation, fun, sure, pleasure, comfort and ease, fairness, justice, pride and station. These are some of the priorities of our culture. But for the Christian, none of these things are the destination. None of these things are to be worshipped or pursued like you see in the world. People will work so hard and just be killing it. For what? For that recreation, for that pleasure, for that station. Finally, comfort and ease. We have a different destination. Our train is headed to a different station. And it's going to take maturing and temperance, self-control, and patience, which is endurance, if we're to have godliness. So rather than living for this world, Peter makes a different point in this epistle to these original recipients of his letter. He wrote in chapter 3, verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holiness and godliness? We're going to get to chapter 3 when we get there but we'll just take a sneak peek. 
Did you know that this whole world ain't going to be here forever? Everything's going to change a lot. And while in our short lives we have already seen some huge changes, folks, you haven't seen anything yet. And for those who are living for this world, they are living for that which passes away. The world passeth away in the lust thereof, as the Bible says. But he that does the will of God abideth forever. If we're not careful, we as Christians will buy into the same mindset of the world and have a worldly focus where we don't even realize it, but worldliness has become our way of thinking and Jesus is an add-on. We've got a different train going to a different station with pulling different cars of different priorities, and we expect to have Jesus as a passenger on that train. And I'm sure he'll be okay with it, because of course he wants me to have all the fun I can have, and I'm sure he wants the best for me. Yeah, he does want the best for you. It's on a different train to a different station. But that's oftentimes how we Christians, I think, end up thinking we just grab the world's framework and we try to baptize it, Christianize it a little bit. The world is passing away. It is not what we live for as Christians. Let's look at this word, godliness. The word is only used 15 times in the New Testament. It's an important word. The word means worship that is worthy of God. It has the idea of authentic piety or true religion. And this is where our mind conjures up some stereotypes and some stigmas. Godliness, piety, you know. This guy with his halo on straight, hopefully, and head in the clouds, and, uh, you know, the, the idea of some guy who lives in the backside of a desert somewhere, really in touch with God and totally out of touch with anything else going on in the world. That's not the idea of this world, this word. Not that we're out of touch with the world, but that we're in touch with God, which has given us a much more effective perspective on how to relate to this world. This kind of authentic piety or true religion is exactly that, authentic piety and true religion. Much of what we think of when we think of some pious person is anything but authentic and not even close to true. We're talking about the kind of godliness that's lived out consistently at home or at work or wherever. We're talking about integrity. Why? Because godliness is not just something that you put on. Godliness is something that is lived out. It means it's going to start inward. We're going to get there in a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself. But when we think of godliness, we think of people who do certain things. We think of people who look a certain way. People who don't do this and don't do that, and that's a godly person. It's more about the externals, but this is not the word. This word, godliness, in the New Testament is a word that is speaking of an internal reality that then expresses itself outwardly 
It's the awareness of God. It's the awareness of God that evokes a reverence for Him. That then creates a departure from evil and a life lived on His behalf. There are certain things you would never even be tempted to do if you knew your boss was looking. Kids, there are certain things you would never be tempted to do if you knew that your mom was right there. It's funny. <laughs> Long time ago in our house, like ages ago, might have been last week, my wife and I pulled in. We were just out for a little bit. And we have, if you guys have been to our house, you'll be there Wednesday, hopefully. We have a glass sliding doors and there's curtains. And as soon as we pull in, there must have been a tornado that went by the curtains because the curtains ruffled. <laughs> as the kids were like, oh no, mom and dad are home and we haven't done the chores. We walk in and you've never seen kids doing chores so fervently, Right? Because we're there. And when we're there, kids are engaged. But not always when mom and dad aren't there. Now, thankfully, there's a lot of maturing going on. Right, kids? Amen. They're getting better at that. But, you know, what we, what we do when we're by ourselves exposes where our heart is. So then real godliness is where your heart is when it's just you and the Lord. That's the, the root of your relationship. The awareness of God that evokes reverence for him, a departure from evil, and a life lived on his behalf. Dr. Jim Berg put it this way. Godliness is a God-fearing lifestyle that promotes righteousness and opposes evil. I don't want to do that. Why? Because God's right here. He's right here. He's with me everywhere I go, and, and I fellowship with him, and I love him. Oh, God doesn't see. God doesn't care. No, 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 no. I, I, I beg to differ. This is godliness. It's internal. Another author said it's descriptive of the right state of an individual with regard to God, the right state of his mind, of his heart, and of his life, of his thoughts, his affections, his conduct the right way of thinking, feeling, and acting toward God. That's going to be what you nurture inwardly. Berg writes again, Godliness is a vibrant personal relationship with God that manifests itself in actions consistent with who God is and with what He is doing in the earth. I like that so much. Manifests itself in actions. Did you see that? Godliness is not the actions. Godliness manifests itself in actions. And I think many of us sell the Lord short and end up upending our families by equating godliness to a certain set of actions. And we focus so hard on getting our kids to just do these actions, memorize these actions. And the other thing that's very, very scary is this. If you do have kids who get the actions down pat, we just assume they're godly. They get a pass 
No one ever pulls him aside and says, how you doing? How you doing? How, how's your walk with the Lord? Has God been doing anything in your life lately? How's your prayer life? Or, or have you seen the answers to prayer recently? Is there something that you're praying about that God's doing? And, and uh, you know, no one pulls him aside because why would I pull him aside? He's obviously godly. Everything lines up. Everything is perfect. And this is why we see problems in our churches of continuation through the generations. Some kids figure out very quickly, you know, kids are smart. If I want to avoid all of the pain and suffering of my older brother, I'm just not going to be an outward rebel. I'll be an inward rebel, but I'll look the part and life will be good. And then I'll get to go on and do whatever I wanted to do and it's all going to be fine. I was a Christian school principal for one year. I remember every single day of it. <laughs> it was quite something. I, I learned a lot about myself, about parents, and about kids. There was one kid who never did anything wrong, ever. He was probably the biggest rebel in the school. His heart was so far from God, he was so dead. He was a leader. Everybody looked up to him. You knew something was missing. I'd, I'd hear bits and pieces from students, but there's nothing you could pin him on. You, you could never hand him a demerit. You could, he, was, he was good. And a lot of us, our systems just work on exposing sins or, or actions. That's where we focus. And I'll tell you, that year, that's more what my focus was. And I had some kids who had so many actions. Oh my, it just kept me busy working through these kids, all their problems. This guy over here, he just sailed below the radar. Graduated, good grades, honors, everything, and straight out into the world See you later, church. See you later, Bible, whatever. Just nothing there. Godliness starts in here. Godliness starts by nurturing those four virtues. Godliness is a vibrant personal relationship with God. A vibrant personal relationship with God. Every one of those words is so important. Personal, not your parents. It's personal. Not your grandparents. What about your relationship with God? Can you get up and talk about who God is to you? What he means to you? What his word means to you? It's personal. It's vibrant. That means it's alive. It's not dead. It's growing. It's constantly in flux. There's things going on in your life. Godliness is that, God, is that God-centered, vibrant, personal relationship with him. That, yes, manifests itself in actions consistent with who God is. That just makes sense. And with what he is doing in the earth. And you'll never have godliness if you try to work it into your life backwards. Godliness is only going to be cultivated as you go back to the beginning and nurture it forwards. You've got to plug into who he is. Some references here that we'll refer back to. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. This is what grace teaches, by the way, and you're going to hear many, many preachers, many different churches teach you that grace is something different than that. Oh, we're under grace. Don't talk about godliness and holiness and sin and do's and don'ts. We're under grace, man. Whatever happened to Titus 2.11? This is what grace does in your life. When you plug into, tap into the grace of the living God that brought salvation to all men, it teaches you how to deny ungodliness and all the worldly lusts, how to live soberly, that's temperance, and righteously and godly in this present world. This is what God is teaching us with His grace. 1 Timothy 4, 7, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Did you know you can exercise godliness? You got upper body day, lower body day, cardio day, godliness day. Now, how about every day? In other words, it's going to take some focus. You know, if you, if you work out, sometimes people will make fun of guys who always skip leg day, you know. Huge upper body, itty-bitty little legs, <laughs> you know. Uh, you skipped, you skipped, skipped leg day, buddy. Uh, well, you know what? You can't skip any day getting into your relationship with the Lord if you're going to cultivate godliness. I'm not saying if you skip a day, it's over. I'm just saying we've got to pursue it with that kind of, of pursuit. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. In other words, godliness is doing more for you than your strength training can ever do. Strength training is, hey, it's important. It's going to profit a little, but godliness is going to profit a lot. How much devotion are you giving toward nurturing these virtues that produce godliness? Thou therefore, 2 Timothy 2, 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No, more, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. We're going to come back to this thought, but the idea of pursuing God means letting go of the entanglements and the distractions in that pursuit. 1 Corinthians 5, Ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you, from among you. Verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Verse 13, But them that are uh, without God judgeth, therefore put away from yourselves that wicked person. What is this all talking about? It's talking about how important it is for God for you to put things out of your life that are not helping you go the direction that he wants you to go. It's not according to your purpose. It's not helping you have a knowledge of him. It's not helping you with temperance. It's not helping you with endurance. It's not helping you nurture godliness. And in this world, you know, we do need to remind ourselves that 1 Corinthians 5 is still in the Bible because in this all-inclusive world where there's uh, no judgment, no hate, no nothing. By the way, this isn't hate, but it's called hate. You know, you can't have any quote-unquote negativity. Uh, folks, no, we have to make choices in our lives that please God. 
And that means sometimes putting certain things out, and it sometimes means putting certain persons behind us, at least for a time. How do we cultivate godliness? Well, as I've already mentioned multiple times, you cultivate the first four virtues. That's how you develop godliness. You cultivate the first four virtues, dedicating yourself to submitting to your purpose and living, we trust, according to that well done, thou good and faithful servant. Excellence according to the fulfillment of your purpose. Deepening your knowledge of God, because you'll never be able to live that purpose if you don't know Him and know, know what He has said and how He thinks and how He would have you to live. Developing discipline, character, and self-restraint. Temperance. And then determining to endure despite the difficulties. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be all kinds of setbacks and failures and you will wipe out and you'll sin and you'll fall down. But the Bible says the, the righteous man falls seven times and rises yet again. We continue to cultivate these, these virtues. Recognizing that this is the pursuit of godliness. Well, when we think about this, <clears throat> who is the guy who comes to your mind when you think about someone who is godly in the Old Testament? I suppose there's a lot of people that come to your mind. But I think of the guy that we refer to as the man after God's own heart. David. Now, he was not sinless. That's absolutely clear in Scripture. But he was a man who had a pursuit of godliness. And I've had people say, how come David's called the, the man after God's own heart? How come he was considered so godly? Look at what he did. He killed a man for his wife. What a horrible guy. And then he goes out and in his pride, he numbers the people when God said, don't number the people. And his general, Joab, said, uh, don't number the people. I think I heard God say something about that, that this is going to be a bad idea. Be quiet, Joab. Number the people. He numbers the people, and thousands die because of David's sin. And a lot of times when we look at David, we get a little perturbed because we're like, how did this guy end up the man after God's own heart? Because we think of godliness as the destination, not the pursuit. That's why. We think of actions and, and don't do that and don't do that and don't do that and don't do that. And David did that, and so therefore, how could he be godly? It was his pursuit. You read the book of Psalms. And tell me he was not on a mission. What other person who's ever lived wrote? I know he had the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay, helping him with that. But seriously, that came from his heart as well. The Holy Spirit breathed it out through him. That was David's passion, though. What other person could possibly even put together that kind of a book? Demonstrating such pursuit and love and devotion for God. Why was David godly? I submit to you, not because he didn't do anything wrong, but he knew how to pursue God. And when he did do something wrong, what did he do? He humbled himself. He repented. He didn't make excuses. He didn't blame and point fingers like King Saul, his predecessor. No, he fell on his knees before the Lord. He got humble. And he would stand up again, forgiven and walking toward that same pursuit. 
Why was David the man after God's own heart? Well, Psalm 119 most certainly tells the story. In fact, I'm just going to turn there for a second. I read Psalm 119 this morning, or at least half of it. It's a long one. I got half of it in. This is, a, this is an amazing chapter. You know what this entire chapter is about? It's, it's David's love letter to, to God's Word. How much he loves God's Word. Verse, 30, uh, verse 33. Or was it, wait, did I get, is that right? 133. Yeah, 133. Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. What is that the heart cry of? A man who is so wanting God to have his life. He's continually submitting to his purpose, submitting to his God, uh, letting temperance take its work, enduring and, 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 and seeking for God to create that godliness in him. It, it, you see that his emotion in verse 136, rivers of water run down mine eyes because they have not kept thy law. Oh, it breaks his heart to see how many people don't care about the word of God. He goes on and, and uh, he says in verse 143, trouble and anguish have taken hold on me. This is endurance. He's enduring through the trouble and anguish. Yet thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. And, and all the way through, there's so many verses I could read. Verse 167, my soul hath kept thy testimonies and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies for all my ways are before thee. He goes on and on and on in love with the Word of God, submitting himself to the Word of God, being changed and molded by the Word of God, and nurturing this heart, which is after God. You know what I find the most fascinating of this? It is that David, <laughs> David didn't even have all of the Bible that we have to fall in love with. That's unreal. I love the Psalms. David didn't even have all the Psalms. He was still writing them. Did David have Proverbs? The Proverbs? He had to wait for Solomon to come around, okay? <laughs> so he didn't have the Proverbs. He didn't have Ecclesiastes. He didn't have a lot of the prophets. He had none of the New Testament. He still couldn't see the beauty that you and I can see of how these prophecies come together piecing this and this together and how it comes out in Revelation and, and, oh, we can sit back and we have so much more to fall in love with, so much more to be excited about, so much more that can nurture our souls and we choose oftentimes to leave so much more on the table. David's Bible compared to ours was really thin. You guys complain about Leviticus, don't you? You know, that's what David was in love with. That's what he was talking about. What else did he have? Leviticus and a few others. Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. That's why he's called the man after God's own heart. That's why he is considered one who was godly. Not because of what he did necessarily, not because of what he didn't do, 
but because of what God was doing in him and the pursuit that he was on. And yes, it did manifest itself, of course, in actions that were good. But let's not read that backwards. Let's start where David started. Godliness is the result of both devotion and discipline. There's a devotion to his word and then a disciplining of oneself with the spirit of God's help in accordance to that word. So cultivate the first four virtues. Remain unencumbered. Hebrews 12, 2. Sorry, 12, 12, 12, 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Folks, one who wants to nurture and cultivate godliness will develop and cultivate those first four virtues like David did, diving into our walk with him with a passion. And as you're doing that, then God will tell you, you don't need this, pitch it. You don't need this, pitch it. I remember being on a race that started cold. And everybody had hoodies, gloves, and then the weather changed on that race, and it got hot. Plus, you're running, and so you're getting hot. And as I'm running on this race, it looked like the rapture had come. And take, I'm like, I hope there's not a bunch of naked people around here, but I mean, there was literally clothes everywhere as people are trying to finish this race, just pitching stuff off. Get me to the finish line. It's hot, right? What were they doing? They were totally devoted to a certain race, and somewhere along the line, they said, don't need this hoodie anymore. Don't need these gloves anymore. They're gone. Don't care how much it costs. Don't need to go back for it. I'm going forward. That comes after you know where you're going, why you're going there, and you're drawing in. Then there is the desire to remain unencumbered, to lay aside the weights, even the sins that beset us. Yes, these things will slow us down. Yes, these things will derail the journey. It will uh, take us off of the pursuit. We must stay single-minded. We need to learn that double-minded men are unstable in all their ways. That's what the Bible says. We need to starve obsessions. And all of us face those. We face things that come into us, latch hold, begin to suck us dry. And then we think that we need it, and we need it, and we need it. And you don't need all these things that are draining you dry and taking you every other way. You only have so much energy. And we've got to, by God's grace, remain unencumbered. Lay these things aside as we move forward in this pursuit refining our focus. Cultivate the first four virtues. Remain unencumbered and be patient. It takes time to cultivate godliness. In fact, it's going to take a lifetime. How's that sound? You must give time because it, it, it takes time and you must give time. And, and, and it might feel awkward at first, some of these things. Sometimes we are so cluttered, we are so busy, we are so addicted to the rat race that when you go to sit down and just spend some time with the Lord, if you haven't done it for a while, you watch, you won't be able to. You'll grab your Bible and your pen and you'll say, okay, this is it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it this time. 
I'm going to do it, Lord. I'm going to do it. Okay. So here we go. All right. Oh, shoot. There was that email. I forgot that email. That's right. Okay. There goes the email. Done. Okay. Now I'm going to do it. We're going to meet with the Lord. This is going to be revival right here. And you read. Wow, look at that. That reminds me of what Bob said the other day. I'm going to Google that. I wonder, you know, and then we Google, you know, this is how we get. We get so frazzled, so used to being distracted. We can't just tunnel in, focus, and be refreshed. We need to have, as Brother Dave Brady told us, we need to have some distraction-free settings for devotion. We've got to be able to say, Lord, I want what David had. I'm going to get up early. Oh, I didn't read those verses. I should have in Psalm 119. There's two verses back to back where he talks about I'm up early and I'm staying up late to meet with you. Brother Jim Berg, in his book on 2 Peter 1, he says, uh, have you ever tried to write with the other hand? Some of you ambidextrous people, you're just weird, okay? No, you're not. You're, you're gifted. But I'll tell you, if, if I write with my right hand, that's fine. Switch it to the left hand. Oh, it just feels horrible, clumsy, awful, like I'm in first grade again, not even kindergarten. It just feels so bad. But if you continue, it's going to get better, easier, it's going to become more comfortable. And for you, putting out certain distractions may be awful at first. Taking quiet time may be terrible at first. Many of us are afraid of quiet time. Be still and know that I am God. Why some people do not know that he is God is because they cannot be still. Learning to be still might be feeling like you're writing with the wrong hand. You say, no. I'm going to see this through. Lord, give me endurance. Lord, give me some, 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 uh, some uh, diligence here to meet with you. Putting all else out. Cultivate these first four dil diligently. Remain unencumbered and be patient in this process. Rem remember that nothing erodes progress toward godliness more than today's entertainment mindset and the modern church's casual Christianity. The entertainment mindset? Next, 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 next. Flip, 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 flip. And the Bible just cannot keep up with that. It doesn't need to. We need to sit and soak and meditate. A couple of questions and we're done. Am I purposing to become distinctively Christ-centered? Do I daily delight in the purpose, in, I'm sorry, in the person of Christ? This is what David did. He didn't even have the New Testament. And he daily delighted in the Word of God. He daily drew in and drew nigh. Do you daily delight in the person of Christ? And here's a hard one. Would an actual daily accounting of my time spent reading and meditating on his words reveal that I'm in pursuit of him and his ways. You know, we can account. Your, your phone will tell you how much time you spent on this and this and this. There are ways to account. It's very convicting. Is my mind filled with his thoughts? 
Has my heart and mind been hijacked by the cares of this world? Satan's working hard. Has my spirit become burdened down by the weight of my besetting sin? Maybe for you, you need to lay some weight aside in the sin that does so easily beset you. As David did, just humbly come to him in repentance. Are you willing to lay it aside and to lean in to him? Am I seeking to be in the word or just conform to the world? There's more I wanted to say, but we're out of time and we need to do a baptism. We have life groups tonight at 6 o'clock, Lord willing. We'll be back and we'll discuss these, uh, these verses in some more detail. God wants us to nurture godliness. It's not going to happen just like that. There needs to be an intentional surrender to him to this pursuit. Lord, help us this morning to surrender, to pursue you. I pray, God, that each of us here would be dedicated to cultivating these first four virtues. And I pray, Lord, that we would delight in your word just like David did. Help us not to get it backwards where all we're consumed with is the the don'ts and the do's and the actions and, and all of that. Lord, help us to get it Get the, 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 the engine pulling the cars, not the end of the way around. That we nurture a true devotion to you that would then create the discipline that you would have us to have. Ted's about nice clothes. Would you take a moment and talk to the Lord? Talk to him about this pursuit. Surrender to his purpose. Lean in. As you lay aside the weight, lean into him. Would you take some time here as you ask God, Lord, help me to cultivate godliness diligently in my life. If there's someone that doesn't know Christ as a Savior, this is the opportunity for you to come to him in faith, saying, Lord, I need you as my Lord and Savior. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. One of us would love to talk to you personally and share with you how you can know for sure you're saved. Don't leave here without Jesus.